voice of Whiteville. Doesn't that sound exciting to you? Cool. 103.9. Welcome to the Columbus Connection, a weekly public affairs program produced in, for, and about Columbus County, North Carolina. Now here's your host, the managing editor of Columbus County News, Jefferson Weaver. Hello everyone, this is Jefferson Weaver with WTXY and ColumbusCountyNews.com with the Columbus Connection. We're just going to do some commentary this week, folks, because there's a lot going on in our county and our state. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, and some of it we're not sure of yet. In the General Assembly, Senate Bill 20, the Safe Surrender Infants Act, is under consideration. The bill had, its, had the support of the Department of Health and Human Services, the North Carolina Child Fatality Task Force, and other advocacy groups and government agencies. It basically modifies North Carolina's longstanding Infant Homicide Prevention Act. This bill allowed a parent, without providing a name, to surrender any infant under seven days of age to any individual. That's where the problems come in. Temporary placement with a child care professional, such as a social worker or a health care provider, law enforcement, or EMS was preferred, but the original bill didn't take into account the evils of child trafficking. The new bill gives the person receiving the child the option to ask for name, age, date of birth, medical history, and other information. It's not required, but the option to ask is there. Some of that basic information can make a big difference in providing proper care as quickly as possible for a child with medical conditions. The surrendering parent is immune from prosecution as long as the child has not been abused. A major improvement in the bill allows the other parent to claim their child if certain criteria are met. SP20 also requires information about lawful abandonment to be distributed to high school students in public, private, charter, and home schools. Now, from what I can see, the newest version takes into account both parental rights and the safety of the child while protecting infants from being trafficked. No longer will a desperate mother be able to be legally pressured by a potential predator into handing over her child. No longer will a potential predator be able to smirk at a social worker or a law enforcement officer and claim to have obtained a child voluntarily from a mother who may be frightened, compromised, or deep in the throes of a narcotics addiction. Sadly, we even live in times that have changed dramatically, often for the worst, since the first bill in 2001. You can blame the downward spiral on whatever you wish the methodical destruction of the nuclear family by media, society, and government, or just plain old-fashioned sin. While we need to address the causes, it's the effects we have to handle right here and now, and that's what this law does. Another measure being looked at by the General Assembly is one of the gutsiest moves the Solons have made in decades. A new Senate bill would prohibit instruction about so-called gender identity in grades kindergarten through fourth grades, among other things, the bill is designed to give parents more control over the curriculum in public schools, and we're not talking about the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic here, folks. Little kids are not sexual beings, regardless of what those dedicated to the normalization of child abuse want to tell us. It's interesting that so many of the people involved in studies to prove that even infants have an awareness of sexuality and sexual preferences have a lot to benefit from normalization of child sexual exploration and, by extension, exploitation. I was more than a little bit shocked to find out that there are transgender pediatric clinics dedicated to providing gender transition, better known sex changes, to kids in North Carolina. They're talking kids who even want children in primary school to have access to gender reassignment counseling, medications, and yes, surgery, without the permission or knowledge of their parents. Now, these are some of the most extreme cases. 
But some of the most prestigious names in our state's medical industry, Duke University, UNC Chapel Hill, and even the Levine's Children's Center in Charlotte, had divisions dedicated to castrating little boys and preventing little girls from growing breasts, along with proper mental health counseling and medications, of course. If you don't believe me, do an online search. And yes, some of these procedures are paid for with tax dollars. What in the hey hira is going on here, people? We have children suffering from cancer whose parents are losing their homes in order to keep their kids alive. If you look around, there's a better than average chance that somewhere this weekend you'll see a fundraising plate sale. It'll be for a precious child who has a treatable but life-threatening condition that insurance companies only partially cover. We have children born addicted to opiates and other drugs who require intensive long-term care, sometimes for years, to achieve a sense of normalcy. Those kids and their parents face hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills to save a life. Yet a boy who plays with dolls, or a girl who holds hands with her best friend, can be pigeonholed as being gender dysphoric, and in some cases receive life-altering surgeries and medication for free. And if parents disagree with that so-called diagnosis of their child, then a medical professional or an educator can secretly enable and encourage a child's transition. This new law is going to put a stop to that. Now, there's a pro-homosexual curriculum in some schools to promote these acts. But yet, we have high school seniors who can't balance a checkbook and third graders who have trouble with the Pledge of Allegiance. The new law will prevent anyone but parents from making parental decisions about their child's future. Why in the world do these people have such a problem with responsible parents making parental decisions for their children? The new law has been predictably hit as North Carolina's own don't say gay law, that term was coined to attack Florida's parental bill of rights. All the bill does is prohibit educators from discussing homosexuality with kids who are in kindergarten through fourth grades. It doesn't block teachers from helping kids prepare for and defend against sexual abuse. It doesn't prohibit medical professionals, religious or secular counselors, and most importantly, parents from discussing so-called gender dysphoria with kids of any age. The bill also blocks gender reassignment drugs for children. Predictably, Governor Roy Cooper has already said he will veto the bill if it comes across his desk. Since His Excellency is still grasping for higher office and needs the support of National Democrats for his hopes and dreams, we can expect him to pontificate and preen while he vetoes the bill. Whether the General Assembly will have the moral fortitude to override that veto will be the question. The numbers are there, but in today's cancel culture, disagreeing has become hatred, which in turn justifies harassing people and their families at home, in restaurants, and anywhere else that a troll might find a target. Some of the critics have hyped up their complaints in recent days, calling for protests in front of the Solons' homes and such. That ever-favorite word, divisive, is being bandied about, along with threats that the bill would harm or injure children. Pardon? as if removing body parts doesn't cause harm or injury. Senator Amy Gailey, a Republican from Alamance County, put it perfectly. She's one of the co-sponsors of the bill. She told reporters, and I quote, It baffles me to think that a bill like this would be divisive. I cannot understand what would be controversial to say that children ages 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 should not be taught about sexuality or sexual activity in public school classrooms. 
Some of us are feeling a little more confident these days that the new General Assembly will help guide our state back to a path far away from the fruit bats that dominate so many state legislatures. The need to check boxes and be socially aware, politically correct, and fashionable is nowhere near as important as serving the everyday people of the state of North Carolina, and that includes our children. Let the little kids be the little kids. There'll be time enough for confusion later on, and there'll be more than enough confusion to go around at the rate we're going. We'll be right back with more on the Columbus Connection. If you served in the Marine Corps, by now you know about the contaminated water problem at Camp Lejeune. If you were stationed or worked at Camp Lejeune from 1953 to 1987, you probably have a lot of questions. We have some answers. You could be entitled to compensation. Billions of dollars are being allocated to pay for damages to anyone stationed at Camp Lejeune during that time. Unfortunately, it appears that officials may have known the contaminated water problem existed and did little to protect their men. The Semper Fi Code was not honored. If you or someone in your family has developed a serious illness, including various forms of cancer, call this Camp Lejeune legal support line right now. You can't turn back the clock and change what happened, but you can certainly call right now and learn your rights as a Marine. Here's the number. 800-741-5819. 800-741-5819. That's 800-741-5819. Paid for by Legal Alert Line. And welcome back to the Columbus Connection, folks. This is Jefferson Weaver with you on this Saturday morning. The Apostle Paul bragged on a group of folks who were called the Bereans. They lived in Thessalonica, if that was in Macedonia, which is now part of Greece. Now, the Bereans were Jewish scholars. They spent most of their time studying, learning, and in the words of the Apostle, testing and trying the scriptures. I guess you could call them first century fact checkers. Whether or not you're a Christian, and if you aren't, we need to talk. We all need to be more like the Bereans. We need to test and try what is proclaimed to be the truth before we trust it as such. I don't know how many of y'all watched the State of the Union address the other night, but I, for one, wish we could get back to the State of the Union delivery of 200 years ago. It used to be the president would send a letter on the condition of the country, that's what the State of the Union is, to Congress. They would read it, discuss it, debate it, and sometimes fight about it. We have the sum of the world's knowledge at our fingertips, in our pockets, on our desks, yet it's hard to find anyone willing to spend the necessary time to research something that doesn't quite sound right. We'd rather go on social media and argue about pictures of cats, in part because people who shriek the loudest on social media always take advantage of the fact that they can't get punched in the nose through a computer. We should be able to trust a dispassionate, objective media to deliver the truth and allow us to make our own decisions. But an astute observer is going to cast a jaundiced eye over even the most truly objective journalism. If that journalist is worth his or her salt, skepticism will be appreciated. While I was looking into the parental rights bill that's proposed right now, I happened across another piece of legislation currently being chewed on in the General Assembly and in the media. House Bill 40 is a bill to prohibit rioting and civil disorder. It shouldn't even have to be discussed. The actions described in the bill are already against the law, but redundancy in the general statutes is a diatribe for another day. 
The bill passed with a veto-proof majority after six Democrats joined with their Republican colleagues. Now, the bill establishes a new level of felonies for rioting, property damage, and civil disturbances, such as those experienced across the country in the wake of George Floyd's death in 2020. Remember, some of those took place here in North Carolina. The Raleigh riots in particular caused several multi-generational anchor businesses to leave downtown entirely. Charlotte saw several major businesses leave the town as well. One rioter is in prison now after attempting to burn a market house in Fayetteville. Vandals damaged businesses and government buildings in downtown Wilmington and were blamed for several assaults. In Lumberton, they broke into a Walmart and stole firearms. Asheville saw streets blocked, hotel customers attacked, and a reporter hospitalized by several protesters because they said he didn't tell their version of the truth. Despite inflicting felony assault on the reporter, those protesters who have been identified were never arrested. While the damage here in North Carolina was nothing compared to the billions in losses seen across the country, the riots got the attention of North Carolina legislators. Representative Brendan Jones tells a harrowing story of driving through downtown Raleigh while trash cans burned and buildings were vandalized. Interestingly, of the comparatively few riot arrests that were made in North Carolina, most were whites, not black. Free speech is a cornerstone of our nation and vital to our freedom. Damaging property, looting stores, and destroying businesses with Molotov cocktails to make a statement against equality, however, well, that's just stupid. While some of the media played down the violence as peaceful protest, there's nothing remotely peaceful about baseball bats and flying bottles. A rally is not a riot, and a riot is not supported by free speech. A riot might cause people to fear you and follow your position, but they will never support or trust that position if it uses violence to drive home its point. The North Carolina voters for clean elections, who are best known for their lawsuits over North Carolina's constitutional amendment for voter ID, calls HB 20 an anti-Black Lives Matter act, thus equating the struggle to repair racial disparities with violence. Governor Roy Cooper said the legislation was an attempt by Republicans to stifle free speech and intimidating people from exercising their constitutional rights. Now, I'm no scholar, but I have read the Constitution. And the last time I read it, I never saw a right to burn a business because I disagreed with the political stance of an elected official or even an entire people group. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not in there. 2021's long session featured HB 40, but that died by the veto pen and lacked a veto-proof majority. Last fall's elections changed that, I hope for the better. I would argue that the constant explaining away of the riots of 2020 is just one reason many folks give modern media the stink eye. The image of a journalist standing in front of a burning building with gunfire in the background talking about a mostly peaceful protest is etched indelibly on the public's eye. Anyone with any common sense should be a little bit grumpy to see the pundits claim that a bill protecting private property is anti-Black Lives Matter. We should be incensed when we see the media nodding their heads and repeating those claims as gospel because to do otherwise is racist. Racism of any kind has no place in modern society. Let's get that straight, people. However, there are those who profit from it. There are heartless politicians and influencers who are more than happy to blow on the embers left over from this country's struggle with race and throw gasoline on the first flame that flickers. Sadly, those types get away with their rhetoric, and they never face the music themselves. Meanwhile, businesses in marginal neighborhoods are destroyed, meaning a loss of tax base, jobs, and opportunity in areas where those three factors are most needed. 
Much of that malicious poppycock could be avoided if we as Americans were willing to do our part as planned by the founders and refuse to blindly trust any opinion, even those with which we agree. In other words, we need to be Bereans. There's more of the Columbus Connection right after this. Has your heater or air conditioner busted? Appliance broken? Computer crashed? Then you need an ARW home warranty. Home system and appliance repairs and replacements can cause stress and cost you thousands of dollars per year. With an A-plus BBB rating and a top-rated home warranty company on Consumer Affairs and Trustpilot, ARW Home provides superior service, featuring the industry's lowest service call fee. ARW Home has warranty plans that cover your kitchen and laundry appliances, heating and air conditioning systems, electrical and plumbing systems, and much more. Call 800-201-1478 to customize your plan. Plus, ARW has partnered with Azurian to protect your new and used tablets, laptops, TVs, and other home tech from accidental damage and wear and tear. All plans come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Call 800-201-1478 now for your free quote. That's 800-201-1478. Welcome back to the Columbus Connection, everyone. This is Jefferson Weaver. As has become standard with my commentaries, I wanted to add a few bright points to the program today. Larry McRae is a friend of mine from over to Tavern. You might know him for his singing in church, along with his lovely, ever-patient wife. You might also know him as a goat breeder. Larry recently stepped out and started a transportation service. Unlike some in that business, Larry Mack recognizes that folks need help getting around the store or the doctor. Well, they sometimes need a ride to church, too. Larry's transportation services often will haul workers to and from job sites, and as a veteran, he has a soft spot for his fellow patriots who've served. He's hiring drivers right now as well. That's right, folks. Somebody in this economy has started a business and is looking for people to come to work for him. For more information, you can give him a call at 757-298-5252. Assistant County Manager Nick West was the winner or the loser last weekend at the Winter Wonderland at Southeastern Community College. For those who weren't outside last weekend, it was cold. It was bitterly cold. Yet Nick went right on through with the polar plunge since he was the biggest fundraiser and beat out the other contestants. The money goes to the Community College Foundation to assist with scholarships for needy students. Now, Nick spoke to the county commissioners Monday about an issue that is far too often overlooked. The county is using grant funds to create a personal health and fitness center and a disused part of the new county office building. Part of the center is for the use of IE911 staff. Telecommunicators, as they are known, are among the real heroes in the first responder world. They have to be able to diagnose medical conditions, evaluate crime scenes, and size up fires and wrecks all over the telephone without seeing what's going on. Those skills are necessary to properly provide the right resources for an emergency. Telecommunicators have to be able to instantly identify what department, skills, and equipment are needed immediately. They have to provide the first responders with vital information. Far too often, they have to deal with abuse by callers and sometimes even by those with whom they are working. Yet they have to do this sometimes while comforting a child, directing a caller to provide immediate life-saving first aid, or keeping someone from making a life-altering decision. 
Miss Patty Andel, an old friend of mine who recently retired as a telecommunicator in Bladen County, once told me that she was tired of dealing with the tragedies every day, and she lived for the victories. She had plenty of them in her long and distinguished career, and she also taught me why you never say the word quiet around first responders. Patty made it to retirement that too many of our best telecommunicators, both here and elsewhere, never make it that far. Alcoholism, mental health issues, broken homes, stress, depression, and yes, even suicide are a problem nationally for folks who have that calm voice at the other end of a 911 call. They bear the burdens of everyone they're trying to help, and too often they cannot discard those burdens when they hang up the phone. The new Health and Wellness Center is designed for all county employees, yet it's primarily for those folks who need to decompress, the ones we might never meet unless there is a crisis in our home, at work, or on the road. In a day and age when it's hard to keep good employees, much less folks, in a tremendously stressful post, the county made a good move in following Nick West's request on adding this extra benefit. The fact that it's paid for by grant funding, and not directly out of the county coffers, should make even the most fiscally responsible smile. We always encourage folks to appreciate all your first responders, but remember the ones that you never see as well. Without those ladies and gentlemen on the other end of the telephone line, the controlled chaos of any emergency would just be chaos. Thank a telecommunicator when you can, just please don't ask them if everything is quiet. This has been the Columbus Connection. We appreciate you being with us today. Of course, you can always catch us on air with this on Saturday mornings as well as online. Just look for the link on our website. For ColumbusCountyNews.com and WTXY, this is Jefferson Week. Make it a good week. This has been the Columbus Connection with Jefferson Weaver. If you have a story that you want to share with us or a comment on a previous program, you can email us at columbusconnection at columbuscountynews.com. The Columbus Connection is produced by Jones Media Partners, and the program is recorded live at the WTXY Studios in downtown Whiteville, North Carolina. Our in-studio producer is Daryl Jackson. Be sure to join us next week for another edition of the Columbus Connection. Thanks for listening. Follow Cool FM on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Cool 103.9 FM.